0: Welcome back to Barside Chats. I'm not even going to introduce my co-host this time. You all know Matt. Matt and I have the most amazing guest on the show. The one and only Margaret Weiss. One half of the legendary duo that created the Dragonlance universe. She and her co-author Tracy Hickman created Raceland. Raceland, One of the most famous and popular fantasy characters of all time. Matt, are you as freaking psyched as I am?
1: I'm feeling like that 13 year old who got that book from his friend, and I was like, "What's this?" Right? Yes. Right. <laughs> that's, that's where I'm at right now. I'm back to being 13. Oh my god! This was
0: the <laughs> so the the first fantasy book I ever read. What? Maybe not fantasy. First fantasy, but the first like adult fantasy book was uh, uh, the the Drizzt books by R. A. Salvatore, and I remember devouring them in like. A couple of weeks and i was in fifth grade so i was pretty young reading these books and then i went to the bookstore and i was like i got my five dollars allowance because you could buy a book for five dollars back then i got my <laughs> five dollars allowance i went straight to the bookstore at the mall and i'm looking at the drizzet books and i've read them all and right next to them is a book called the dragons of autumn twilight it's the first of this series called dragon lance and i was like ah that looks so good and then i read it and i fell in love and that was fifth grade which was god knows how long ago <laughs> and oh my God, this is like the formative moment of my nerd fantasy career, uh, no not career, my nerd fantasy life, you know? Um, and it's just the most amazing. We're about to talk to Margaret Weiss and I'm so, so excited. Yeah. Yeah. My,
1: like, I, I can tell you the moment my friend said, Hey, I started reading this. It's okay. But I, I thought you might like it. And I think he thought I might like it because I read books and I had, I think I'd read Tolkien at that point. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll try it out. That looks cool. The cover looks cool. Right and yeah never looked back right <laughs> that was that was the gateway uh tolkien was great but that was the gateway drug to what's let's be honest has become quite the addiction <laughs> at this point
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i think i read the lord of the i read the hobbit i don't think i read the lord of the rings but i read the hobbit and i was like oh this is cool there's like dwarves and elves and stuff and then you pick up Dragonlance, and there's more dwarves and more elves and there's a thing called a kender that likes to steal things and it's like, oh, this is so cool. There's even more than I ever thought there was. It's also a world where, like, the, the geeky, weird kids hung out with the popular kids. Right. And they went and saved the world. <laughs> right. And I think we all identified, like, with, we all identified <laughs> with, like, some of the characters. Like, I identified with, um, like, Tannis Halpevin a, a lot because I am, um, I never really felt like I fit in. Growing up, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was, in, you know, even in like elementary school and middle school, I never really felt like I fit in. And Tannis never really felt like he fit in because he's a half elf and half human. And the humans don't like him because he's half elf and the elves don't like him because he's half human. And I always resonated with that. And then, you know, Raceland obviously is the this frail, like sickly wizard. He's it's not, it's, it's not a jock. He's He's like a nerd. He likes to read. And I obviously resonated with that, and so for me, this this was the first book series where I really felt like, "Hey, I'm like represented in this series. I'm represented in these books, and this is really powerful for me." And I didn't I, I enjoyed the Drizzt books, but I'm not a master swordsman. I'm not fit. I'm not like any of those things. But in Dragonlance, like you know, there's nerds. There's there's nerds hanging out with the cool kids. Karaman's a jock, but, and his brother's a nerd, and they love each other. And like oh, that's I don't know awesome. how
1: this was, if it was for you, uh, but Raceland really. Made me realize that I didn't necessarily have an ethical core <laughs> because <laughs> cause, cause I really liked it when he got back with people back at people you know there was that kind of uh you know there was that been bullied sense that I had growing up that he was someone that I looked at, and I was like, if I could just have the power that Raceland had, I think I would probably use it this way <laughs> yes and I think and i think and that smile that they that uh that Margaret gave him, you know, this, when people would look at them and they'd be a little bit scared right. at the smile because it was not what they expected him, how they expected him to react to situations like when he was going to school. I swear, people probably saw that look on my face growing up at times where I just saw something happen and I was thinking that person deserved whatever that was. Now, adult Matt is thinking like, hey, that's not really good. I can't, <laughs> I can't support that any longer. But I can tell you thirteen year old Matt was on the Raceland train.
0: I'm much more like Flint Fireforge these days. Just leave me alone. Let me let me let me follow my hobbies and get these kids slash Kinder away from me. yeah exactly um, exactly so yeah i totally i totally get it um so man but i'm super stoked i'm super excited to talk to margaret um she's been a hero of mine i think we actually met her in like dragon con 2005 or something yeah yeah um we actually did like a book signing she signed one of our books but beyond that we haven't really been able to talk to her and so this is going to be an amazing interview with a lot of really cool stories i'm sure uh she's a master storyteller so
1: I wasn't sure. Maybe it was Fanex. I met her
0: at X. Were you at X with me? Did you come out? I to don't see? remember, no? but you and I walked up to a table and started talking to her for about five minutes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That was amazing. I, I still have some books. It was 2011, I see, is one of the times that I got it signed. So somewhere in 2011, yeah. uh, she signed a bunch of my books. Yeah. I cannot wait. Let's, let's do this. Yeah,
0: let's do this. All right. We're going to bring her on. Oh, and one more thing before we start. There are extensive spoilers for the Dragonlance series, the Deathgate cycle, and anything that Margaret Weiss has ever written. So if you have not read the Dragonlance books, or the Deathgate cycle, or the Dark Sword series, maybe proceed with caution. Hey everyone, welcome to Barside Chats. I'm Brian the Gleeman. And I'm Matt the Innkeeper. And this is a Wheel of Time podcast from the Dusty Wheel. Welcome to Barside Chats. We have a special guest today. It is Margaret Weiss. Margaret, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much.
0: We wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh our fandom and how much how big of fans we are of you we matt and i have known each other for 20 years 20 plus years and and we first bonded over the wheel of time which is uh the, the series that we both uh this is a podcast about the wheel of time and matt has a youtube channel and a website dedicated to the wheel of time but when matt and i first met we also realized we loved the death gate cycle series um and i don't think i had met very many other people that had read the series so to us, this is like a, a real joy to be able to talk to you and and spend some time uh, speaking with you. So, thank you again for coming. Well, thank you.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, one of the I think for me at least, one of the things that just this last week I've been listening to a lot of interviews, interviews you've done previously with other podcasts and just other uh, other services and and one of the things I noticed was just how much love uh, and and maybe it's a respect. I don't know, like all the words it is, but just uh, how much love fans have for you. And I kind of wondered, because I, I, I had read at least some stuff, and maybe it was Wikipedia, I don't know. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was said that uh, you had gotten into maybe fantasy fiction in, uh, through Tolkien in college. Was that your earliest kind of like science fiction, fantasy fiction series, or had you read stuff prior to that?
2: No, I wasn't into science fiction. Um, yeah, I read Tolkien in college. A friend of mine introduced it to me. This was back in the 60s when um, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings books were very popular among the college crowd. Uh, kind of started in California and spread across colleges in the U.S. It was, kind of, it was interesting because um, there was a lot of hitchhiking back in those days, of course, with the anti-war movement and the protests of the 60s a lot of the, a lot of kids were just bird hitchhiking and um, and traveling back and forth and they brought the lord of the rings with them. So uh, yeah, so that was my first introduction to fantasy probably because it was, you know, some of the few fantasy books that were out there.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me just well it's really interesting just how impactful maybe Tolkien was to that generation, and then how much then your books were to our generation growing up. Um, You know, at at least that's how I, that similar, I don't know, people say they have a really similar reverence for Tolkien uh, at the time, you know, when he was their first entry into fantasy. So I I thought that was was remarkable. But another thing that I, I can't remember if I read this, uh, maybe I heard this. It, It sounds like though, for you, I, I thought it was a story you said were in kindergarten that you used to get up in front of the class and tell stories. Is that what it was? I, how did that go? How, how did that come about?
2: I've been a I've been a storyteller all my life, and um, yeah, when I was in kindergarten, uh, that's back in the day when we went. You know, most kindergartners went mostly full time, but we had a nap. You know, we had that time, so the kids would all lay down on their rugs, and the teacher would put me in front of the class. To tell a story while she did her paperwork and stuff, and um, so I uh I told a lot of stories from stuff I'd seen on TV. We had uh, I remember I told um, I think the one was um, Captain about um, oh, uh, Treasure Island, oh, yeah. uh, because I'd seen that on Walt Disney, and I so I told the kids the story of Treasure Island except I hadn't seen the ending. So I just made up my own. <laughs> <The
1: teacher. laughs> okay. I doubt you so remember teacher, it, but what was your end? You all right, no,
2: I <laughs> don't remember, but the teacher told my mother, she liked mine better.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the teacher liked yours better. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah.
1: Was that, now I have a couple of kids and I know that it's not like this direct genetic transfer of things that I like to them or anything. Uh, was this something just you uh, about you or were, were your parents were your family really creative in this way
2: um my dad was an engineer um my mom was a uh, stay-at-home housewife but she had been one of the waves in uh, world war ii and so she'd had quite an adventurous life um in the navy uh, she wrote She wrote what she called doggerel, which was just kind of silly poetry. Uh, She liked to do that. Um, But as far as I know, um, that was that was about it.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Did she does that just poetry she would share with you, and would she read it to you as a kid, or was it something that? Oh, she
2: she would she would write like silly poems for birthdays and Christmas presents usually always came with what was some of her poetry she also played the piano she was a very good pianist
1: oh, okay did you, did you pick that up or are you are you musical in any way
2: uh, i was i was forced to take piano lessons <laughs> i liked it. actually i liked i enjoyed taking piano lessons but i absolutely hated like appearing in recitals and so I would almost get sick to my stomach. So when, when the teacher wanted me to start doing recitals, I said no. That's it. I'm out.
1: <laughs> that's good. I, my I, my uh, my parents are singers, and they, I I was <laughs> I was forced onto many a stage, many a stage that I did not uh, did not enjoy. I, I pu- puberty and, and my voice changing was like the best thing that could ever happen <laughs> because it was like, <laughs> you can't trust me up there anymore. Yeah. It's my voice. It's no good. <laughs> so I, I, I'm kind of curious then, you know, it sounds like uh, that was kind of a unique thing with the storytelling aspect of maybe your childhood. Did that transcend your entire kind of, is that what you did as a teenager? Were you also writing things?
2: I was ago? right. Yeah. As soon as when I could read, I just, I read, Voraciously, I loved reading, and um, then I began writing. Um, I think I was in the sixth grade. I wrote a story about a collie that because I'd been reading a Dog" by Albert Payson Terhune, and um, then I, when I was in the ninth grade, (laughs) I remember this so vividly. Um, We were supposed to write a book report, and I was, I was in love with Sherlock Holmes. I had read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories, the novels, everything. And so um, I wrote a book report on Sherlock Holmes and um, I turned it in. It was about 15 pages long and every other kid in the class had written like a paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, there. I was so proud of my book report and my teacher flunked me, gave oh. me an F.
0: Because oh, no. she accused
2: me of, yeah, she accused me of plagiarizing it. Oh no! Because she, yeah, she told my mother that no ninth grader could write this well, <laughs> and oh, my mother was furious. Uh, so yeah, I I remember that that came as a real shock. Um, but I just kept writing. I had uh, a couple of really great English teachers in college. And or in high school, and then I majored in writing and um, English literature with a minor in history when I got to college. So just carried right on. So when you my mother thought I was going to (laughs) starve. Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, you showed her. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When you went to TSR and started working for them, you you didn't go there to be a writer first, right?
2: Uh, well, sort of.
0: What, what did you do? Did You're an, edit, an editor?
2: Well, yeah. When I was hired at TSR, when Gene Black hired me, that would have been in 84. Um, they were looking for editors who could not only edit, but they could write. Because they were turning out, um, they were doing choose your own adventure books and um, uh, the HeartQuest books. That's, that's one thing I was hired to do. Which was uh, supposedly kind of choose your own adventure romance novels. They never went anywhere, but <laughs> um, but but we had to. We were under such time constraints that if we read a no, uh, edited a novel and a part needed rewriting, we didn't give it back to the author. We just simply rewrote it ourselves. So one reason Jean hired me was because I had done some writing and I'd had a couple of um, of juvenile books published so so wow. she hired me because i was an, i uh, had been an editor for several years in missouri and um and uh, and also i was writing
0: gotcha and then uh somehow from from there you t- you turned into actually writing novels
2: yeah that's um that started with dragon with the dragon books um tracy and i knew we were the ones to write those books they had hired another writer and my job when I started working on Dragonlance because Tracy was in charge of the game product which consisted at the time of 12 uh, adventure modules that would come out once a month uh, into an ongoing campaign that would last a year and they wanted to publish adult books they had never published adult books before so my job was to boil down the plot that extended over all 12 of these modules and, um, and turn it into a novel. And so I did that uh, and we gave it, they found a writer that, um, that was going to write these books and started feeding this writer information. And in. I can't remember his name, but anyway, we were feeding him information and he was giving us back sample material and it was horrible. I mean, it was just dreadful. It wasn't at all what Tracy and I dreamed of because we were in love with this world by now and we knew it so well and we knew the characters. And this guy was just not, just not doing it. And so um, Tracy and I took one weekend and went to and wrote the first five chapters for Dragons of Autumn Twilight. And that Monday, and I've never done that before, by the way, is write five chapters in a weekend. That Monday, we took the chapters to Jean, and we said, "Look, we we think we should write these books. Would you read our sample?" And Jean told me years later that the only reason she read it was so she wouldn't hurt our feelings. <laughs> so she took <laughs> our our chapters into her her cubicle. She had a door on her cubicle. She was uh uh. Kind of a big shot at that time. They they were the only ones that got doors. But so Tracy <laughs> and I sat in my cubicle, and we just we waited and we waited and waited. And pretty soon Jean came into my cubicle, and she looked at us and she said, "Wow!" And we're going yes. And she goes, "This is what we're looking for." And and we we know we know. And so they fired the other writer. He got to keep the advance, so he wouldn't sue. Um, and Tracy and I, they told us we could write the book, but we had to meet his deadline. Well, he'd used up three months of a six month deadline. So we had three months to write the first book and we had to write it on our own time because both of us had, you know, we're working there, our day jobs. And so that's, we started working nights and on weekends and, um, we did it. We came up with Dragon's Bottom Twilight.
1: Is that uh, what you gave Jean to read? Was that, is that really what we're reading in those first five chapters or did it change a lot?
2: It was, it was pretty much, um, of course it was revised and edited, uh, but that's, that's pretty much the basics.
1: What did, what did Jean say? So uh, what was it that, do you remember what captivated her about those first five chapters? Was there a specific thing or just an overall? I mean, I know as a fan what captivates me about them, but I'm just kind of curious. Did she give you like this? It's the, the characterization, the world. Was it everything?
2: No, it was just, she just liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't <laughs> <Okay>. say
1: really. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. It, it, that relationship with Tracy has obviously transcended many, many years. Uh, do, you recall, do you recall when that friendship began? Was it just you just happened to be uh, coworkers that just kind of understood each other and, and enjoyed you know each other's opinions about things, or do you you know what was it that kind of kicked that off?
2: That was from my work on the um, on the Dragonlance project because uh, I was part of the Dragonlance team. Tracy was head of the team because he was head of the game side, and there was Doug Niles and Jeff Grubb, uh, Michael Williams. He was the editor the games editor and as it happened he also was our poet um and so we were this was the Dragonlance team and they planned the games they worked on the game design the modules and everything else and i sat in on their discussions from the novel side and so that's why that's how tracy and i became well they all became my friends
1: sure no, that makes sense. Uh, what have been, uh, you know, obviously the collaborations worked. I think I've heard you mention and also read that, you know, you'll put together a synopsis and you'll send it over. He kind of takes more of the world building approach to things a bit. And you're, you're writing most of this, uh, if not all of it in uh, what makes, or what are the challenges of that collaboration? Are there any, or is it just always been a smooth process between you two? I
2: think it's, it's been pretty smooth. Um, you know, it, it it's kind of hard to explain um like i said, i'll do he'll do we'll do work together on the outline the synopsis, and any world building that needs to be done he'll do that, and then I start the writing, and uh lots of times I'll send him questions while I'm working, like what do you think of this? how does this work and then once i once I finish the first draft, that goes to him, and he adds stuff he wants to add or generally he'll come back and he'll say no I really think this doesn't work this uh you need to he's always telling me I need to show something more rather than telling it (laughs) and I need to describe things more I'm terrible on descriptions I'm just I'm working way too fast and oh hell everybody knows what a draconian looks like so I just you know <laughs> go right through and Tracy goes no you know not everybody knows what a draconian looks like so you've got to describe it so I, I, okay fine so yeah that's that's what we do So, <laughs> we were working on legends and it was we were at the end and it was very very tense um uh, the ending because um uh, uh, this is when you know Caramon's trying to get into the abyss, and the, and Graceland's you know going to challenge the gods and all this, and um, and so I'm talking to Tracy on the phone. It was at night, and he was at home. I was at my home. And I was talking to him on the phone, and I'm taking notes. And he goes, and you know, there's Caramon has a power that not many people know about. And I'm like, what? You know, <laughs> this is the end of the book. <laughs> okay, fine. What is this power? And Tracy said. Caramon always uses American Express. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fantastic. <laughs> you got
1: to you got to have a sense of humor I'm sure <laughs> in such in such deadlines.
2: We did our meetings generally just ended in laughter. It was uh it was always always fun.
0: When you guys worked on the uh so you did the the first the, tri- the chronicles and then you worked on some of the other series the trilogies like legends and such. Were those were those uh, assigned to you by your bosses, or did you come up with them on your own? Did you pitch them?
2: Well, you have to see. You have to realize that TSR. Once Tracy and I were hired to write the books, management decided that um, that they were. Well, management took them to Random House, who was our distributor, and said um, the first book dragons Autumn twilight is going to be written by margaret White and tracy hickman and random house said never heard of them <laughs> so right. random house decided that this book was not going to sell and management decided that it wasn't going to sell and we were supposed to have you know three books autumn twilight and winter night and spring dawning but they said no uh just write one book and it's going to be X number of pages because they wanted to sell it really cheap for 2.95 because they didn't think anybody would buy it. So, okay, fine. So we wrote this book and that was all that was planned. I mean, we had the entire, we had, you know, the other two books already planned out and mm-hmm. we knew where Legends was going because, you know, we knew that Raceland's story and Karamaz wasn't going to end. Uh, With with Chronicles. But anyway, so we wrote this book and um, we promoted it. Tracy and I ended up promoting it because about that time TSR was going through one of its first um, financial upheavals and uh, they had fired most of the marketing department. So that left Tracy and I to promote our own book, uh, which we did. We did a reader's theater at Gen Con and got lots of people to come, put my daughter in a sandwich board and sent her around giving out tickets. Uh, so, <laughs> That's
1: awesome.
2: Uh, we had people tell us that, you know, the only reason I came to see your play was I couldn't disappoint this l- sweet little girl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's genius. Uh,
2: so, um, so The book came out, they only, they had to print 30,000 copies because that was the shortest press run they could get. So they printed 30,000 copies and um, they went to the, the hobby because, as Random House had not bothered to sell them into the bookstores. So the book went mostly into the hobby. Well, the hobby, game stores didn't know what to do with novels. They didn't carry novels. They had games so I had game store people telling me well I stuck a couple up by the cash register (laughs) or I put them in the Dragonlance module and people started buying them well then we began to get this was in the days before email we began to get phone calls and letters from people saying you know look I really love this book but I can't find it anywhere and where can I, I, I've been to bookstores and they don't carry it. And they never heard of it. So Jean came to me and she goes, um, see what you can find out about this. So I called the bookstore in Kansas city cause I was from Kansas city. And, um, and I said, um, I'm looking for this book called dragons of on and twilight. And the bookstore manager said, you know, she said, I wish I could find it. I'm getting requests for that. And I don't even know who, who wrote it, who published it. So I told Jean and Jean goes, okay, call um, Random House and find out the name of the fantasy book buyer and we will send him or her a book. So I did. And so I called Random House and I asked for the name. And I just wanted the name and the address. But the next thing I know, they connect me. And I, this guy is answering the phone saying, I'm so-and-so fantasy book you know, fantasy book buyer. And I'm going, uh, I can't tell him my name because that would look tacky. So <laughs> I kind of garbled my name. And I said, I'm with TSR. And we published this novel called Dragons of Modern Twilight. And he goes, wait. He said, I just got a call from a bookstore manager in Kansas City asking me about that book. And I'm like, wow, think of that. Uh, What a coincidence. So anyway, I told him about the book and sent him, you know, we sent copies of the book. And they liked it. They started sending it to bookstores. And within a month, it hit the New York Times bestseller
1: list.
2: Wow.
0: <laughs> that's that's uh, crazy.
1: That's just like a, you know, it's like a Beatles story. Like one, you know, one song goes out and all of a sudden it's just like, uh, yeah, that's... So are you saying within a month of hitting the hobby stores or how long was it when it first went to the hobby stores? Oh, or... no,
2: it had, been, it had been in the hobby uh, for several months by that time.
1: Okay. I missed. <laughs> um, And
2: then, then it finally got into the bookstores.
1: Oh, wow. So yeah, that's... When was the do you recall the moment where you're like where you maybe it's that moment where you were on the New York Times bestseller list? Like, can you recall that moment when that first happened? Oh yeah. <laughs> what was the feeling? Yes, I what
2: was home. the feeling? <laughs> it was it was unbelievable. I was home, I was fixing dinner for my kids, and Jean called me and said, We just got noticed that your book is on the New York Times list. It's going to be. Because we would get advanced notice. And I was just I mean, I was really, really just stunned. My breath, you know, this is something every writer dreams of and never thinks it's going to happen, and it happened. So I was so just dazed uh, and thrilled that um, (laughs) I was fixing dinner for my kids and I was fixing tuna casserole. (laughs) And um, I, uh, after dinner, the kids said, you know, wow, mother! That, that was really good tuna casserole. And I went <laughs> into the kitchen and the can of star-kissed tuna was sitting on the counter and the cat tuna was gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's... So I had fixed my kids' tuna casserole with cat tuna.
1: <laughs> that is so wonderful.
2: <laughs> I love how that happened. Yeah, what was really, you know, bad was that they, they always loved the cat tuna better. <laughs>
1: I love that. I love that that happened though. The day that you were told that, um, and you talked about this. You know, you would write in the evenings and on weekends, whatever, and nights and such. Uh, was that the moment? The moment you got that call? Did your life change right? That did you quit your day job basically? Or when did when did that transition come between like full time, all the time writing versus having a day job?
2: No, I couldn't quit my day job at the time. Uh, like I said, I was sole support of two kids. Uh, so, but. It did change because TSR decided that they wanted more books. Mm
0: -hmm. But I still had
2: to keep my day job, which meant we wrote uh, Winter Night and Spring Dawning, And and they wanted them right away. They wanted to put out three books in one year. None of this like they do publishing today where it takes a year, two years to put out a book. No, they wanted three books in one year. So we're okay, fine. So we wrote wrote those three books while we were still working our day jobs, I think. Well, again, TSR uh, still undergoing financial problems. Um, At one point we, we thought the company was going to go bankrupt um, and we were going to come to work and the doors would be locked. The Mm -hmm. artists, Oh actually, Larry Elmore and Keith Parkinson and um, Jeff Easley and Klein Caldwell when you walked into the art room, they had all their paintings in display on display behind them on the walls. It was the most amazing thing. The artist actually took down all of their paintings and took them home, uh, in yeah. case they locked this out. Um, so we, I really, at this point, never knew, from one moment to the next if I was going to have a day job. So we were writing and um, eventually and there was the whole upheaval with Gary and Gary lost the company and Lorraine Williams came in. And I think it was at that point that um, that Tracy and I realized that. Well, back up. Okay, so. We did. Um, we put out uh, chronicles and legends, and all six books hit the New York Times list. So it's um, crazy. <laughs> I, uh, we wanted to we wanted to branch out. We thought, okay, we've told our our dragonland story, but we had some other stories to tell. Uh, dark sword. We wanted to tell the dark sword story uh, about a world that um, that is filled with magic, but one guy Joram, has no magic um, and how he would get along in this world. So we wanted to tell that story. So my agent, Ray Pinkner lived in Milwaukee. And we sent our, we told her, we sent our story to Ray. And um, he said he, he was going to shop it around New York. So he took it, uh, where'd he take it? Bantam, I think. But Ray didn't know the fantasy editor of Bantam. So he said, I'll send it to the Western editor and he'll walk it over. So he sent it to the Western editor and he walked it over to the fantasy editor, who at the time, I think was Lou Aronica. And um, um, and he he said he told, he gave it to Lou and he said, well, I've got this story that's by these two people named Myra Weiss and Tracy Hickman. And (laughs) Lou goes, what? (laughs) What? And so, um, so he he pretty much immediately made us made Ray an offer, <laughs> told Ray that that they wanted the books. and so Ray called me and said um, really good news. He said Bantam has made you an offer for these three books, and uh, uh, we were thrilled. Um, and I said, oh yeah, wow, that's great. What's the offer? And he goes. $30,000. And I go, wow, that's incredible. That's $10,000 a book. And he goes, no, no. He said, that's 30,000 per book. Oh, nice! Wow. And it was just, and that was back in the day, you know, um, and uh, it was, it was stunning. So it was pretty much at that point that we actually were making enough money that we could afford to quit our jobs. So that's what yeah. we did. Um, no.
1: I'm sure that transition between, you know, it's not your day job to your day job was a, a significant one, probably. Scary.
2: Yeah. yeah, it was scary, but it was it was good. I, we needed to do it. And uh, so, yeah, we just sort of went from there. Sure.
0: So Matt and I, you know, we love Dragonlance, but the, the Deathgate Cycle is one of our favorite series. It has this really unique you know, concept that most other books don't agree. I, really, I don't think we've read any other books that come close to this like type of concept. How did you and Tracy conceptualize the story? What was, what inspired you to write The Death Gate Cycle?
2: <laughs> Actually, that came about at, uh, when I was at Disney World. Um, well, really? I just, uh, yeah, uh, I had bribed my kids when I was to leave me alone while I was writing by telling them when they were old enough, we'd go to Disney world. Now I told them this when, when they were like seven and eight, but by this time they were teenagers. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so I, I, we went, my kids and I, we went to Disney world and Tracy and I were, and we were, we were thinking of of the death Gate books and uh, we knew we wanted to do something really epic, but we didn't exactly know, what we wanted to do, how we wanted to shape it. And uh, so my kids and I were on the Living Sea ride uh, at at Disney World. And back in the day at uh, Eptide, on the Living Sea, they had this one point where they were showing the creation of the earth and they had four panels, um, earth, air, fire, and water. And... uh, And I saw those four panels, and I suddenly realized we would do one book for each, one world, one world of earth, one world of air, one fire, and one water, and then combine them all in the the last three books. And I was so excited by this that I left my kids on the ride, and I (laughs) went out through an emergency exit (laughs) and set off an alarm um and and found the nearest payphone because again no cell phones um and I called Tracy and told him and he was so excited he started designing the world right practically that second uh and so that's how we came up with with the Death Gate world uh, is- and I always tell people you know that they say that nothing creative happens at Disney World but it does <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is the best oh. story about the. I, I've have never heard this about kids Like that's oh, that's amazing. Well, what's
0: great is I've ridden that ride before. I went, you know, I would have been like your kids' age when I was uh, right around then, and I went to Disney World with my parents, and I remember that ride. So we might have been on the ride at the same time. That's awesome. That's an awesome story.
2: Well, well I heard somebody set the alarm on.
0: <laughs> so I, it's I don't remember that. So maybe we weren't on the same <laughs> ride. <laughs>
1: I'm remembering a moment. It's been a while since I've read the books, but now anytime I go under the water in any Disney ride, I'm going to think of when Haplo is struggling. I thought he's struggling to get out of his ship or getting into the, you know, there's a moment that I can't remember it now and it's bothering me, but like now all I conceptualize now is when I'm under the water, I'm going to think of this death cycle and and Haplo down there, Uh, man, when it, when it it comes to, so it sounds like you had the world first for this one. Uh, did the characters? How? What was the process to get to the characters? then you know the the relationship between Haplo and Alfred, to me at least, is one of my favorite relationships. Oh man, that's been
2: so long ago. I like was actually the first character was Hugh the Hand.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah, that's a that's a great character too. Oh, it's Hugh is a fantastic character. Oh man.
2: Uh, yeah, he kind of he kind Sorry, of started it because I wanted I wanted a character that he was facing execution and somebody comes to him with a choice. You can either die or you can live and do this for us. And what they ask him to do is so horrendous that he, he kind of has to take a moment to think, you know, maybe death would be easier. Uh, but then he goes on. Um, so yeah, Hugh was the first character and the other characters just sort of, I came about, you know, <laughs>
1: Yeah, so the Sartans and the patrons—that—that that was like something that you're saying evolved as you were writing the story of Hugh the Hand. In Tracy, in
2: Tracy would have Tracy came up with all of that. Wow! And I'm pretty okay. much character driven. Tracy's world driven. Uh, well, and we decided he was the one who invented the magic system.
1: For that one, okay. Is it always that does he always invent the magic systems? Uh, in these other works outside of Dragonlance, is that like his thing, or do you also take part? In-
2: yeah, because he was the game designer, and so that's part of game design. You know, you devise magic systems that work. Um, yeah, so he did the magic system that was based on probability theory. Oh,
0: okay. Is there a is there a um world building element that you personally? came up with that tracy did not come up with that you're proud of introducing
2: (laughs) hmm i was i can't remember i remember really hating fire sea the third book because it was so depressing i think (laughs) i came up with uh i think i came up with the the sort of zombie-like corpses that were shambling about Anyway, I was always really sorry I came up with them. But uh, yeah, ordinarily, I love writing. I get up every day and love it. Death, uh, that third book, I had to force myself to do it because it was, it, like I say, it was so depressing. It was so good, though. It <laughs> is like, so I'm, good. Just, I'm, I'm so I glad know. you did it. That's, I, like, <laughs> a, that's like people, it's their, it's their favorite book. And, and I'm like, no, no.
0: I, I don't know if it's my favorite book, but... It, that, the shambling corpse things are the thing that I think of every time I think of the Deathgate cycle. So it's, it's like one of, one of those distinctive elements there that's really amazing. So
1: good job. <laughs> <laughs> is that, it, well, I mean, it sounds like, is, is that ever a world that you would ever consider going back and writing in, or is Deathgate kind of it's far in the past?
2: It's far in the past. We've told that story. I mean, there's seven books. Um, I really don't know where we go with it. And we told the story and it ended in a good place.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fantastic story. I, I, it's, it's interesting to me because I, I loved, my friend gave me um, the first of the Chronicles when I was 13. And that just transformed the way I thought about reading and fantasy and I loved Raland, I think, at that time. I think I was very kind of empathetic to him in the sense that I had older brothers <laughs> and i and I was this kid that didn't look like his older brothers. you know, people would question if I was part of the same family, you know that kind of thing and I remember and 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 I was different than everybody else, and I liked different things and you know i he he was definitely somebody I empathized with. I think as an adult i you know, there's other characters that you've written that I emphasize and em- empathize with more so than Raceland now. Uh, but I know Raceland is your favorite, if uh, from what I've heard in interviews. Uh, if you take Raceland out of the equation, Raceland and Tass, when it comes to outside of the chrono out in Dragonlance itself, who's your favorite character then that you're writing or that you have written?
2: Oh, well, Raceland and Tass. Tass is the most fun to write. He's just a joy. Uh, and, uh, so, yeah, those two were fun. Kitiara. When I wrote, I didn't, didn't get to know Kitiara very well because she's, you know, pretty much a minor character in, in the first few books. But when I worked on The Lost Chronicles and I told her story in the second one and Dragons of the High Lord Skies, I think, um, I got to know Kit really well. And uh, and I really came to like her. Uh, she was a lot of fun to work with. Outside of Dragonlance,
1: do you have a favorite when it comes to Dark Sword, Rose of the Prophets? Yeah.
2: Um, Simkin was Simpkin? was a lot of fun to Simpkin's work great. with. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, Rose of the Prophet, uh, Matthew, of course, because he was uh, the first gay character I had ever written. And um, so he was—he was interesting. Um, let's see what else. Ah, oh. in uh, the Star of the Guardian series, Lady Magrady, because she was who I want to be. <laughs> and hmm. so they're all kind of blurring together now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a- That's not all I can think of right offhand. Uh.
0: I have one of my favorite characters is, uh, actually crosses series and that's, uh, Fizban, uh, or Zifnab. <laughs> um, and I remember reading the death gate cycle after I read, you know, your Dragonlance series. Um, and then being like, Oh my gosh, this is the same person. And they just, you know, messed up his name. Um, and I'd never read that before. Not, not many authors do this like Easter egg in multiple series. Um, what what was the thought process behind that? Was it just a fun gimmick that you did?
2: Yeah, he was he was well. We needed a character like that, and he was a lot of fun. And Tracy said, "Well, let's use our Fizzbang character, but we'll call him Zipman." And of course, he won't be the same person. But we so always so he's not said, actually the same person. He's not a, this no. And we always say that Zipman read a lot of books as a child, and he <laughs> modeled himself on Fizzbang. smart. So, okay.
0: yeah. <laughs> If you were to write another series, uh we got a question from a fan of ours that asked if uh if you or Tracy wrote another series, would the role of the quirky old guy be fulfilled by an eccentric male named Panfez? Uh, uh. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Okay. Okay. So that that trope is done. You're done with the Fizz Bans. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's that's hilarious. Why what, what what is
1: it about Raceland? I you've talked about this and you know, you've, you I think you mentioned knowing Raceland almost better than family members. What what is it about Raceland that you uh, I don't know if it is, is you love Raceland as a character or is it just you understand him?
2: I understood him uh, well, and that all goes back to Larry Elmore, uh, Larry Elmore's painting of Raceland, because when we were working on the books, uh, the artist had done the paintings for the first modules, and Larry had done the done paintings of all the characters, and he had given raceland, golden skin and hourglass eyes. And so we were at one of the Dragonlands team meetings and I said, um, look, uh, Karaman is this really good looking guy and he's strong and handsome, but he's got this twin brother who's kind of frail and weak and he's known as the sly one and he has golden skin and hourglass eyes. And can you tell me why He has those. And Larry said, well, because I thought it would look cool. (laughs) And I go, okay. So as I'm doing the novel, it was my job to come up with a reason why he had golden skin and hourglass eyes that would be plausible to the reader. So about this time, I was thinking about this and I thought, what if he had to take a test to prove he was an adequate magic user, because to my mind, magic was such a tremendous power that the wizards in Krim wouldn't just want anybody running around throwing fireballs, you know, so Makes they sense. would make the, make wizards, take aspiring wizards, take a test. and so I thought, okay, and if you, if you fail that test, you die. So you have to prove that you are so much in love with the magic. That you are willing to risk your life to prove it. And I thought, of course, Raceland would. I mean, I knew that he would. Uh, but how would Caramon feel about that? You know, this brother that he has protected all his life and they have this codependent relationship. And how is he going to feel about Raceland being willing to risk his life for the magic? Well, of course, Caramon doesn't understand. But he supports his brother, so they go to the tower, and that's where I came up with the test of the twins, and which was the first Dragonlance short story that was ever published in Dragon magazine. So, um, so it was from that moment on when I knew Raylan's ambition, his love for the magic, his kind of love-hate relationship with Karaman, and I just I got to know the character. And it was because Larry thought it would look cool.
1: <laughs> I love the the origin <laughs> of that is is amazing. Now I, I know you've you've actually been asked by fans many times about this idea of Fistangulus. Uh, fist, how do you pronounce it? Fist, fist, Fistandulus or um, Fistandanus? There we go. And and Raceland. And whether or not they're one and the same, if they've merged. And I, I love metaphysics when it comes to Wheel of Time. I love kind of trying to understand, you know, how things are built. And you've said often Raceland doesn't even know. And then you, you've also said you, you don't know. It, when you say you don't know, is that from the position of you don't want to make a declaration? Or is it from the position of you're no longer writing in Dragonlance, so you don't want to say what's happening there? Or do you have this feeling
2: like, no, I don't know. The answer to that question no i really don't i really don't um i have keith parkinson's i own keith parkinson's amazing painting the last uh trial assistant analyst um where he and raceland are having this magical duel and um and it, it it's really i always i think about that when i think about the two and um i always have the feeling that raceland came out the winner but i just never know for sure and of course it would bother raceland yeah uh, and you know we are my we are writing more in the dragon Lens world it's just i can't talk about them.
1: sure sure is it is that a question you would ever de- deign to answer as a writer in the future in other words is it a question you want to think about and you want to answer for race you know for raceland and, and fans or is it something that it's you just it's fine to leave it out there. And you, and, and you like that it's left as kind of a, you know, a legend or a myth.
2: I'll, I'll put a maybe on that. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. That's, no, uh, I, I appreciate that. It's one, It's just one of those, as I listened to and watched interviews. um, Yeah. That, that kind of was, I, I really wanted to know that. So yeah, I appreciate you kind of talking that through That's That's, uh that's really great.
0: In the, uh, one of the great things about the wheel of time, I don't know if you've read the wheel of time or not, but One of the things that Robert Jordan did was he left a lot of unanswered questions out there. And so, and I don't know if he did it intentionally or not. I think at the beginning it was not intentional. And then over time he realized how much we loved it and started leaving some unanswered questions in there. But um, the unanswered questions really give the fans you know, something to think about and talk about amongst themselves. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you watch an episode on TV and it lands on a cliffhanger, you go to work the next day and you're like, oh, my God, did you see that guy? He did that thing. <laughs> you're just like, you you, you want to talk about it. Makes sure you want to talk about it. And the Raceland and the Fist Analyst question has been hanging over our heads for, I don't know, 25 20 years. years. <laughs> and it's uh, something that we still talk about every once in a while. So um, is that something that you did you intend to leave it unanswered or was it just kind of a thing that made sense to not explore right now? Um, Like, did you, did you think intentionally, I'm not going to answer this because it's more interesting that
2: way. Yeah. Tracy always had a theory uh, called the, the shining castle on the Hill. And like when you're, when you're approaching the Hill and you see this beautiful castle and it's, it's the shining castle on the Hill and you look at the castle and you imagine all the, the people who live there, and how lovely it must be inside and what all the adventures. Uh, But when you reach the castle and you go in, you see that there are cracks on the walls and the floor is dirty. And the shining castle on the hill is no longer romance, romantic. It's just a house. Um, So we always went with the shining castle on the hill theory that, um, you know, the less you said about it, the more scope for imagination. Sure. Yeah. That's a great way to think about it. Which is I, what I always say when I have to describe Draconians. Right,
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> less is more, people. Less is more. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great one to turn back around on Tracy. Like, look, it's a shining hill. We don't want to. It's a shiny Draconian. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to show them all the, the cracks. Um, so, I, about that, <laughs> our fans, obviously, a lot of them that would be watching this episode, will have read The Wheel of Time. Have you ever read The Wheel of Time?
2: No, I don't read fantasy.
1: Oh, interesting, okay. Has that always been the case or is it, I once you started writing in it, you decided you weren't going to?
2: Yeah, because I need to hear my own voice in my head. I don't need to hear Robert Jordan. <laughs> right, right, sure. Yeah, so I just, I, I read all sorts of other stuff, but um, just not fantasy.
1: Gotcha, uh, and when it is other stuff that you're reading, and what are you picking up, you know, when you have leisure time? And, and...
2: Right now I'm reading The Dig. Uh, that was the Netflix show about the archaeological discovery in England, uh, the Sutton Hoo Dig, um, or Ho, however you pronounce it. Um, so I'm reading that. Very interesting. And I'm kind of alternating that with uh, uh, some sea stories by Alexander. I think it's Alexander Kent. Um, cause I, I like historical novels. So those, those are the two I, I read, I read one and then I go back to the other. And that's what I'm reading now.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fun. Uh, I have to say, I do read a lot of, <laughs> I know Brian's going to call me out here. I used to read a lot of fantasy <laughs> and then I had, <laughs> then I, then I had a job and a family and other things going on and I haven't read as much. Uh, but, uh, I completely understand this idea because my head is full of ideas of other authors, right? Uh, especially in fantasy. And whenever I sit down to write anything in fantasy, it often feels really derivative of every of every idea that's just there. And so I'll often write something that's not fantasy because I feel like that is something that's more mine, if that makes sense. So that, that, that makes that, that makes a lot of sense. Although I, I will say this, uh, one of the things I have noticed, or Brian and I know this really well from following Robert Jordan for so many years is he had a continuity editor or, you know, he and he had assistance with him uh, to make sure as he, you know, built his epic 14 book series that things would, you know, that he would keep things in order and understand And, and a lot of it was kept in his head, of course, but he had people read through and, and verify that. And Brandon Sanderson, I know, does that also. Do you have continuity... People, assistance or is it just something you and Tracy just keep track of on your own? And you've always just done it.
2: Um, I have a continuity, a, a research editor, or not editor, um, assistant helper, uh, who's been because, like I said, we're um, we're working on Dragonlance not new Dragonlance novels right now. It's just I can't talk about them. Sure. But uh, Shiva Bot has been. Uh, been working with me on these books for when we started the last couple of years. Um, and he's been an amazing amount of help. Um, and I think I can say that much. <laughs> that's, sure. No, that's Well, I, I would imagine for
1: something this epic, you would need it. I mean, I. I yeah, well, I'm a,
2: it's been a lot of years.
1: Well, sure. Well, and I'm a huge Wheel of Time geek. And I feel like there's just, it's hard for any. I don't know how Robert Jordan did it, honestly. Uh, I know when Brandon took over writing for him, just trying to consume and understand the interactions between everything in a world is really difficult. And especially even when you've built it, uh, it's it's difficult. So no, that, that makes sense.
0: Along those lines, um, you had, you and Tracy did not have the rights to the Dragonlance characters. You, you wrote In the World, but, you know, the, the company owned the rights. And so other authors would come in and write things. How did that make you feel?
2: We were so, I mean, we knew that going in. Uh, but we just wanted to get the books out there. We knew we had a really good story to tell. And that was fine with us. We just, get, we just wanted to tell our story.
0: So it didn't bother you if like a, another author killed one of your characters.
2: Actually, uh, we worked a lot with the other authors um, okay. to kind of, again, or uh, we tried to after we left the company um, that pretty much TSR severed the communications. They didn't want us talking to the other authors. So that sort of ended that. But I, because I knew the editor who was working with the other authors, he would sneak questions to me. <laughs> so in a way we kind of did work with other, authors. but then that's why. And then too, they didn't care about continuity back in those days.
1: Right. Um,
2: sure. And so a lot of things would happen to the characters that it completely contradicts what we wrote about them in, <laughs> in the book. Uh, but they didn't care because they didn't think the reader cared. Um so then they start getting complaints, and then they realize that yeah, maybe the reader does care. Um, so then later on, they started being uh, being more careful and letting us work with some of the authors later on. Particularly when we were doing the short story anthologies, I got to meet and know a lot of the other authors, and that was fun.
0: I always loved the anthologies to see like a whole bunch of characters in a very short you know space. That was always my favorite.
1: Did you have a situation where Tracy would answer something about the canon of the of the world or, the, or a character or and you would think wait that's not what we decided or you would answer a, a fan's question and it would get out there and Tracy would in other words was there I would imagine you get to answer lots of questions and uh did you ever have situations where you had to kind of like accept the other person's answer for something that maybe you didn't.
2: Well, not really, not really, because Tracy always used to say that we lived in that world. So it was very real to us. Um, I mean, it is very real to us. And generally our lines of thinking go along the same lines.
1: That's a, yeah, that's really impressive. And that's awesome. Uh, obviously over the decades, you know, at this point, you know, I would imagine that's, that, yeah, you're probably just in a in a zone. I'm sure <laughs> We're working together in in that way. Uh, uh, the uh, I, I think we had another fan question uh, about uh, yeah from Sean Carroll just asked uh, whether or not you felt uh, that Kryn des- is there is there something about Kryn that you believe deserved more exploration exploration back in the day you just couldn't do it or didn't have the time for it.
2: I always thought it was Taladas was interesting when they decided to explore Talatis, I thought that that was kind of an interesting uh, concept. Um, there's always more places to explore on Korean. There were places that we didn't go that I think would have been fun. Um, uh, you know, we, we really went, when you think about it, they did a lot of traipsing around, but there were lots of places, again, like I say, we didn't go that. The islands where the Minotaur live. that that would have been really cool. Um, and of course, you know, Mount Nevermind was always fun. Um, I don't think we got to go to Hilo to see where the Kender live. Uh, oh, so yeah. That lots would be, of
1: places. Oh, that would be so fun.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Please do that in the future. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> I, I that would be wonderful. Oh gosh, I can't even imagine that. Uh, <laughs> And, and I know, uh, obviously, uh, our fans, uh, like I said, we're, we're all kind of very focused on, well, we love the Death Gate Cycle and Dragonlance. What is it you're working on? You know, I know you can't talk about the other when it comes to Dragonlance, but are there novels you're working on right now that you really love in other worlds? Uh,
2: no, not right now. Okay. There are novels I have worked on that I love um, the uh, Dragon Corsairs series. That I wrote with Robert Kramas. Um, Those were a lot of fun. Really, really enjoyed working on those books.
1: Yeah, I have a, I have a long list. <laughs> and like I said, like I said, Brian makes fun of me every time I he sees me on the internet tell people like I need to read that. <laughs> and <they'll be> like, <laughs> like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You, would. I've I've given him dozens of books that are great that he should read, and he's like, yeah, I'll read them. Sometimes he will buy them, and they sit on his bookshelf, and he never reads them. So. <laughs> Look. <laughs> I can't explain it, but
1: I did read the Soulforge uh recently and I loved it. Loved. It. I had never read I, I had never read it before. I don't know why. Um and it was uh yeah, it was wonderful to kind of sit back down and and have that view that you gave to uh to uh, That was yeah, it was fantastic.
0: One of the uh So when Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was the uh uh really the one who brought fantasy to the masses, you know, kind of like, you know, your, your generation read it. Um, our generation read Tolkien, but then we also read Dragonlance. Like, Dragonlance was our uh-huh. Tolkien, basically. You took the concepts that Tolkien had of like humans, dwarves, elves, et cetera, and kind of ex- explored an entirely new universe, entirely new world. Um, and that set the stage for a lot of what modern fantasy is like, um, because up until that point... It had been Tolkien or nothing, kind of, and so Dragonlance kind of opened the world and said, "Hey, there's, there's a whole lot of other people can play in this world too. Come on in," and which made it very welcoming. How do you feel about that as like your legacy uh, or your uh, your your you know claim to fame here in, in the fantasy world?
2: <laughs> uh, just that it was. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it's been a wild ride. I uh, I think what What has touched me the most, and I didn't expect, was that Dragonlance has been translated into, I don't know how many different languages. It's gone all over the world, from Israel to China. Uh, They, um, a Russian woman I met at Gen Con told me that they they were smuggling Dragonlance books behind (laughs) the Iron Curtain. so yeah, yeah, me and Reagan we're responsible for the fall of the Soviet Union.
1: Um <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> That's
2: that, that is a claim to fame. I love it. <laughs> but there's the idea that there's something so universal about those characters that uh, people all over the world can relate to them. Uh there's there's um I just thought that was really neat that there's a humanity there that people in China and people in Israel can read about Rachel and, and and empathize with him and understand him um i i think that's just really cool it
1: it, it is very cool honestly just uh, like i said uh very impactful when i when i did read that book um dragon's autumn twilight uh when i was 13 that is what led to uh, this moment, <laughs> you know, for many, for many ways uh, in my life. Uh, I, I did, I, I'm kind of curious here as we, as we finish up is, have you ever had a situation where you've actually uh, included fans in the books or the fan inspired characters or plots? Uh,
2: uh, Dalimar. Uh, Dalimar was actually the name of a guy we met at Gen Con.
1: Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> That's awesome.
2: Uh-uh. I told him. I said, "I love your name. Can I use that in the book?" And he was like, "Sure."
1: So, that's uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Is is it something that you've done other times, or is it that kind of just the one time it happened?
2: No. Let's see. We've kind of done other other times. Um, sometimes, you know, we didn't. It's it's an urban myth that we that Dragonlands came out of a role playing game it was totally right. the other way around there was the role-playing game then there was dragon Life. uh but sometimes in other role-playing games you know incidents that have happened that uh, that i that i've taken um so are
1: there are there are there people in books where they were inspired off of friends that just don't know about it <laughs> where you've where you've you've snuck them in and they just don't know
2: no not really i don't think so um Something like, um, you know, there's the story that I didn't really know Tanis at the beginning. I was having a real hard time getting to know him. Like, I knew Raceland and all. And Tracy even came to me when we were working on the first book, and he said, you really don't understand Tannis. And I go, no, I, I don't get him. Tracy said, it's easy. He's James Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, you're right. <laughs> and so Tannis, for me, became... James Kirk just very easy oh, oh my
0: gosh that's... <laughs> wow. that's so so so. Tasselhoff Burfoot is not based on your best friend from high school
2: no <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> no okay okay that's Roger
2: Moore actually was the one that that kind of gave Tasselhoff life because Roger Moore when he was the editor of Dragon he wrote the first uh Tasselhoff short story and uh, a stone's throw and uh, a lot of a lot of past personality came from roger's story
1: wow uh, to to end us off here is there a is there a fan moment that it really was uh, i know you mentioned the one where you met the woman in in russia is there just is there another kind of moment like that from fans that really kind of touched you and made a difference to you from an interaction standpoint and i'm not trying to call out a specific fan i'm sure engaging with fans is enjoyable but is there one that just really sticks with you?
2: Well, there's the one that Tracy and I, that has had so much meaning to us, and I probably can't get through this without crying, but I'll try. Um, Tracy and I were at a book signing in California, and, uh, the, the, um, and we were near a military base, and they, um, a soldier came in in a wheelchair, and he came up to our table and um, asked us to sign a book. And he said, but first I want to give you something. And he gave us, um, oh, I can't remember, bronze two medals, a bronze, uh, metals, a bronze mm-hmm. star, I believe. And I think it was a purple heart. And he opened those. He said, these belong to you. And Tracy and I just said, no, no, we can't. You know, he said, I'm going to tell you the story. So he said that he had been, I believe it was in Afghanistan. He had been out with his patrol and he was on point. He was um, um, doing reconnaissance and he came over the hill and he saw the enemy. And um, he turned around to warn his patrol and was shot in the back. And he fell to the ground and he lay on the ground and he had to warn his men who were coming up and they didn't know what was happening. And uh, he said, he asked himself, he said, what would Sturm do if he were, if this happened to him? And so he stood up and warned his men who were coming and then collapsed. And they had given him these medals. And that he said, he said, because of you, because of what you wrote about Stern, I was able to save the lives of 12 men. Wow. And so, yeah, so he gave us the medals and he got up out of his wheelchair and he saluted. And then he sat back down and Tracy and I were in tears by this time. Both of us were crying and hugging, you know, and we hugged him and it was and um. So Tracy said, I will take these. He said, but I, your family may want them. And so all you do is say the word and I will send them back. And so we had his name and address and Tracy has the medals.
0: That's an incredible yeah. story. Wow. Uh,
1: thank you for sharing it with us. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. I, I would be, I would not be surprised if, uh, you know, thousands of fans, um, uh, you've made similar differences in their lives. Uh, um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, yeah, I I just appreciate you sharing that and for, again, coming on here and spending an hour with us talking about it. It's uh, It's been fantastic.
2: I'm happy, too. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. And the dogs were quiet.
1: I know. They did a good <laughs> job.
0: <laughs> well, Margaret, it was great to have you on the show. We really appreciate your time. Uh, is there anything that you would like to share with us before we sign off?
2: No, just... Um say hi to everybody out there and uh thank you for the interest and the love and um i appreciate all of you we
0: appreciate you too you're one of our favorite authors and this has been an absolute thrill for both of us uh, and an honor we appreciate everything you've done thank you so much So, <laughs> dude, dude, we just talked to Margaret Weiss for like an hour. That was awesome.
1: Just, my hand is covering my face. I just don't know how to react at this point. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was so cool. Uh, she's wonderful. She's just wonderful. That's I. I'd, I'd listened to some interviews that she had done recently. I know she was on Twatcast. I'd actually spent this morning listening to some YouTube podcasts. You know, and. Yeah, that that is the person that I've heard on all of those. Just wonderfully giving of her time, you know, and really gracious for all of the the love that fans have for her and and the work that she and Tracy did. And that's how it felt the entire time. I I just realized, like, wait, maybe I didn't prepare enough questions. <laughs> you know, like, uh, okay, now I need to work on the the next group of things that i'm sure i totally forgot to ask you know i'll go to bed tonight thinking like shoot you know i i needed to ask these two other things
0: (laughs) oh yeah man she has some really great stories the uh the the death gate cycle at disney uh uh, thing was (laughs) that that blew my mind and I, i really did ride that i remember very vividly on that ride with my mom i was probably nine or ten, maybe eight eight or something. I remember my mom had no idea what was going on. She's like pushing all these buttons and things uh on the <laughs> on the, the ride and I'm just like, this is so cool. Uh and so when she started describing that ride, I'm like, oh my God, this is that memory that's been stuck in my head for, you know, thirty years. And oh God, it was such cool so cool to read that. And then she was inspired by that to create one of our favorite fantasy worlds from the Death Gate cycle. That's just I will never
1: look as soon as she said that all I could think about was Disney and how it had its different worlds.
0: Exactly, exactly. And all means, of a sudden I was like So as soon as oh she mentioned gosh, Disney like, I started like, thinking like oh the seven kingdoms yeah, of De- oh, Yeah. Like uh, which of
1: those is the labyrinth, you know? Right, like, right. now I'm going to go to Disney and it's just going to be the death gate cycle. Like that is the yep. coolest. Yep. And 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 I'll be honest the one that made me laugh the most has to be that Tannis is Captain Kirk. <laughs> that's so great. Oh my gosh, that's so good. That's so good. That is that is a treasure. Just it's it's funny, right? Like as fans, you know, you just wait for that one moment and she was like I said, she was so effusive, right? She was so giving in her answers and that was such a fantastic one. Like uh, and again, now I can't think of Tannis <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna see let's I'm see i'm totally gonna to see william shatner now in my head oh no tannis. oh no now i have to do so a reread good. well now i'm gonna feel for kitty more i know <laughs> now i'm gonna be like now i'm gonna be like oh yeah i totally understand yeah uh, I get it. yeah that is not how i thought of tannis ever nope.
0: and it has forever changed me it's, it's you can't unsee <laughs> it now uh so we we talk a lot about the wheel of time and the wheel of time obviously is our favorite series and i think about the thing that that it's it's really been a formative element of our fantasy fandom, so much so that you know we talk about it every week or, or constantly. Really, Dragonlance is oh, it's up there, man. Like it's it's I'm sure that there are just as many Dragonlance fans as there are Real of Time fans, and I bet the Venn diagram overlaps pretty significantly. As I said in the in the podcast, like Tolkien really showed the world what fantasy is. And then Dragonlance really made it accessible to the masses. It really made it accessible to everybody. Then Robert Jordan put his own twist on it and showed us what modern fantasy really looks like. And so this chance to talk to Margaret, who's one of the foundational fantasy creators of all time, was just incredible. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about the conversation was when she mentioned that a lot of the story ideas came from the arts. So the artists... Would paint the art, and then they go in there and they say, "Hey, why does Raceland have hourglass eyes?" I don't know. I thought it was cool. And then you go, "Oh my god!" Now I have to create a story. And then that's where, you know, it's inspired by the art, and 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 pretty explicitly so too. You know, you look at Robert Jordan. You're like, where did he get his ideas? Well, he got his ideas from history. He got his ideas from, you know, real world things. Weiss and and, and Margaret and Tracy could just walk down the hall and look at some artists. I'd say, what's that? <laughs> Oh, that's a cool story. You know? So I thought that was really fascinating.
1: Yeah. The fact that they can do that, right. The fact that that's possible just is amazing to me. I've, I've tried to write things. I've written things that are chapters long, but I've never just like passed a painting and gone and had just the entire story in my head, (laughs) you know, like, and, uh, and I love that she's that creative, and that they that they love this so much that even in that situation they were like, "Okay, this is what we're given. We can make that work." And they and they did make it work. Yep. Right. Like it's one of it's it's a classic. It's it's a classic. Like you said to her, we really are like they are our Tolkien. You know? Right. And there's no doubt, no doubt about, no doubt. You know,
0: no doubt. Yeah. One of the things that came up with this idea that she never knew where her next paycheck was going to come from. And, uh, and then kind of overnight, almost not overnight, but you know, uh, pretty suddenly their, their fortunes went from like, nobody's reading this to everybody's reading this. And that's a pretty incredible story. And there's, I mean, I, I, I guess most authors that happens at some point, but for this to happen in the eighties, when like in this, this sort of era where there's a company and their job is to create art for dungeons and dragons. And, games and then somebody's like i'm gonna write a story about it and then nobody's gonna publish it and then i'm gonna have to go get my daughter like to wear a sign around the street like that's that doesn't happen anymore like that's that's old school that's old school publishing that's like really cool to hear about it is i mean even brandon
1: brandon's stories have that kind of old school feel to them where he's like yeah i was working at a hotel or whatever and at night shift and i'd write you know and i just keep on writing and i'd I think when he published his first one after he wrote like 10 books or something, I don't know, like he he wrote a ton until right. it finally happened. And he was doing it on the side, but he was dedicated. He was going to make this work in many ways. Like you had asked her, you know, was it just like you were going to be an editor? She's like, no, I was a writer too. Like I was writing. People hired me for that. But it took a while, right? I think she was in editing, I want to say for seven or eight years before this happened, right? And, you know, uh, maybe that's a good good word for both of you and I and other people out there. Like if you have a love for reading and writing and you still have the dream that someday you can be published, like keep working on it. Like it's possible. It's possible. It's possible.
0: Anything's possible. Margaret Weiss was probably the favorite interview I've ever done. It's been, it was a true honor to have her on the show and I'm just thrilled that we got the opportunity and I got to share that experience with you uh, and you and I bonded over the series for a long time. So uh you know I, I really appreciate uh you setting all that up and so we could have a chance to talk to her
1: yeah that was uh that was one of the situations where uh she interacted with us uh, I think I had made a comment and she interacted to it and it's like oh that's really cool that she's interacting. how amazing is this and uh really great to be willing to jump on here like when the fact that she uh was willing to you know give up an hour of her time to to talk to us in many ways, probably, you know, qu- answering questions that she's answered maybe a thousand times yep. in some cases, but there were really unique things that she told us, you know, the story about her making dinner for her kids. Like that's certainly not what I'd ever heard, you know, in, in reading some of the interviews and listening to them, this idea that her kids ate the, uh, what is it, the cat tuna or something? I was like, <laughs> this is such a great story. Oh man. Um, Yeah, I I can't even imagine that moment of writing something and months later, basically, I want to say it was like six months later, she got to notice that they're like on the New York Times bestsellers list. Right. Forever. Forever changed her, not her own life, just her own life, but so many. So many other people. Across the world. Yeah. Right. Uh, And that, having that kind of impact is, yeah, it is amazing. So, Yeah. Uh, much love for Margaret and thank you, Brian. This was a lot of fun, dude. I can't believe we've come full circle here. You know, Wheel of Time led to discussion of Deathgate Cycle, uh, you know, which led us to make a podcast about the Wheel of Time, which led to us interviewing the author who created Deathgate Cycle. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: it's yeah.
1: a fun little multiple turnings there of the wheel. Multiple turnings
0: in the wheel, the circle of life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Let's just leave it right there. And if you are a fan of this podcast, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or tell a friend about us. We'd love to have more listeners. That's it for now. See you next time at the bar side. Barside Chats is a Dusty Wheel production, jointly hosted by Brian the Gleeman and Matt the Innkeeper. If you would like to support this podcast, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or you may email us at podcast at